Hi guys, welcome back to part two of episode 159 of Unknown Passage, a podcast that tells the stories of those who have gone missing or have been murdered abroad. Hope you're all doing well and you're ready for part two, the cat and mouse game to nab Herbert Zuckers down in South America. Now, if you haven't listened to part one, you have to. That sets the sets the scene for why we're hunting Herbert Zuckers in the first place. But first off, I just want to give you just a quick case update regarding a case we did um, a fair few months ago. Um, the case of Bryn Hargreaves, he was a Welsh rugby player who went missing in West Virginia uh, 14 months ago. That case was requested by Rachel at the time. Um, and because it's local to her and she actually reached out to me yesterday and said, um, Bryn Hargreaves, like, he's been missing for 14 months and it looked like he took his own life. And, and anyway, his, his body has been found um, in the woods very close to his home where he went missing from in West Virginia um, and positive, positively identified as Bryn Hargreaves, um, unfortunately. A lot of questions about how he was so close to his home and not found, but as Rachel said to me, you know, the woods there are really thick and if it's off trail, which a lot of them don't have, um, it makes sense that they didn't. I am presuming that this is another case of, you know, male suicide, unfortunately, but autopsy results are pending, but it just made me so sad to read that. Um, Such great movement with the Toy Accordingly case and then, you know, as one of... My patron said, you know, I didn't know what I expected with Bryn's case, but it still makes you so sad, which is which is so true. So my heart goes out to to Bryn's family. Um, and I think that's a really important episode I did because I talked about kind of male mental health and um, some important statistics. So where we left off, we talked about Herbert Zuckers in Latvia, his early life as kind of a celebrity aviator, the Latvian Lindbergh. We talked about kind of eyewitness accounts of him being one of the worst Nazi collaborators during the Second World War that Latvia saw. Um, And then we kind of left off with introducing a character called Mio, that's his kind of nickname, who's crucial to the second part. He was a Mossad agent who was tasked with finding Herbert Zuckers uh, 20 years after the end of the war, who was by this point living in Brazil and finishing him off, essentially. So much of this part comes from a couple of amazing articles, one from from the Times of Israel titled How the Mossad Hunted the Butcher of Riga, who murdered up to 30,000 Jews, and the equally incredible Hunting the Hangman, uh, which is an, an incredible article from the Jerusalem Post from just a few years ago. And I know I was thinking, you, you always think, you know, these numbers seem so just, you can't put it into context what 30,000 looks like or a million people look like. But I was, I, you can look up what a crowd of 30,000 people looks like and it's like an entire arena, you know. And when you look at that, it starts to put into context what is like an abstract number if he's responsible or played a role in the deaths of that many people and you look at the actual an actual picture of an arena full of 30,000 people, it, it starts to crystallise in your mind just how many lives he destroyed, not only ending those lives but the web that it creates of everybody related to them, how many lives it affects 
it works out to be, you know, in the millions. And so that's why it's so important to catch these people. Now, I'm going to start out by talking about why what happened to Herbert Zuckers happened under the Mossad, and it, I think it might help you understand a little bit more their their position. As the 1960s dawned, <clears throat> we're about 15 years out from the end of the war, and already discussion was brewing in Europe surrounding how that they wanted to end the hunt for Nazi war criminals, even 15 years on when Mengele, Eichmann... You know, all of these big names were still out there living their lives and it's only been 15 years. They was they were looking to end the hunt and to introduce a statute of limitations on the crimes, which just seems absolutely insane to me. And obviously this was a huge issue for normal, rational people that aren't politicians. It was even a proposal that had been submitted in the West German courts to make this law and protests erupted across the globe. People were pissed. There were huge like protests in New York and London, people walking in the streets. Even the Pope protested this proposal, which I found really rich considering the Vatican actually gave a lot of Nazis, including Mengele, <clears throat> their new documents to then move to South America using the rat lines. They were one of the main rat lines out of Europe for Nazis. So I found that really interesting. So this proposal ultimately, spoiler alert, would be defeated in 1965 because of public outrage. But for the years up, many up to 1965 from around 1960, many felt that these Nazis and war criminals would get away with their crimes because of a ridiculous statute of limitations on murder and war crimes. In Israel, as soon as the Mossad heard about these plans to end the hunt for Nazi war criminals, when it was barely 1960, the country's intelligence chiefs were not happy with this. Um, and this is the agency, the Mossad, as a response to this, they decided to do what was something incredibly brazen. Um, they would essentially openly hunt down a Nazi known, an, a known Nazi collaborator and fugitive, execute him and send a message to the world that even if the courts aren't going to do anything about this and they're going to put a statute of limitations on what is a terrible thing and just tell the world to get over it, um, that we're not going to do that, that we're never going to forget in 1960, they nabbed Adolf Eichmann, who I talked about on part one, and they went through the legal avenues to do that, which would result in his execution. But this execution that they were going to plan, which actually initially it wasn't going to be a Herbert Zucker's, which I'll talk about, this particular execution would be carried out extrajudicially outside of the confines of any country's laws and without the judicial process. And once completed, a simple statement would be left with the body of a Nazi indicating it came from those who wronged. Israel would never take responsibility for the for the execution, but it would serve as a warning that this would continue if Germany in particular approved this proposed amnesty. Now, ultimately, the proposal would be canned and I don't think it's a coincidence that this proposal was canned a month after what happened to Herbert Zucker's happened. So it just shows that this kind of action obviously affects legal avenues and, and sends the message you want it to send. 
So who is the Mossad? If you're not sure, the Mossad is the National Intelligence Agency of Israel. Today, there is approximately 7,000 active agents, although because they are so secret and so locked down, this information is classified and really hard to come across. <clears throat> when a member of the Mossad does a mission, you'll never hear their name and you'll never hear the details of it because it is so highly secret. They're like the Israeli CIA. But in this instance, because this got such a national stage, years later, the man who headed this and set up the whole trap for Herbert Zuckers would be publicly kind of introduced to the public years later. Um, and that's Mio. Now, the Mossad obviously does a huge number of things and has many units dedicated to different tasks. One unit post-war, and this is only one of many, was dedicated to the hunting and capture of Nazis. But as the Israel, the Times of Israel talks about, it actually initially wasn't after the war a priority for the Mossad. It was actually just establishing kind of, you know, modern day Israel with this influx of new kind of supporting the immigration of so many people to Israel. And it wasn't given a lot of priority hunting Nazis at all under the then Prime Minister of Israel. Of course, other countries, including the United States, had these departments as well, Nazi hunter departments. But actually, in the early days after the war, the Mossad just was not focusing on Nazi war criminals. It was actually only when they got a new Prime Minister from memory in the 1970s that he actually put a focus on finding still alive Nazi war criminals when the ones before him had not. So it was a very small department that was set up, but they were essentially given free reign um, from the Mossad <clears throat> to do whatever they wanted up until the execution of Herbert Zuckers within the realm of judicial process. So in 1960, as I talked about on part one, Adolf Eichmann had been a massive nab for the Mossad. They had gone to Argentina, tracked him down, kidnapped him, which it is classified as kidnapping, brought him back to Israel to face charges which resulted in his execution. Even being highly skilled, covert intelligence agents, a lot of people just think that the Mossad got every big fish that they were looking for, but that's not the case. I actually found out through researching this, which I just did not know, how many Nazis they had on their list that they actually failed in their missions to either locate or nab. Usually they were able to locate them, but they're just, they weren't able to grab them. These Nazis were living super paranoid lives and a lot of them would get a whiff of the fact that someone was onto them and they would, they would flee or it would just become really difficult to get them, especially the big ones. And this includes a number of big fish. Here's a few of them. Um, the first one is Joseph Mengele. He was the doctor responsible for medical experiments at Auschwitz, a horrible piece of shit who I'll talk about probably on like a five-part series one time, <clears throat> if I can stomach it, on this podcast. His story post-war um, is you know, him flitting between different South American countries. Uh, he did not take his family like Herbert Zuckers did to South America. Um, and he was the big fish. He was like number one on the list for the Mossad for a long time. But because of how he lived, if you read about his story and he moved around a lot, he was actually really hard to get to. They also had Martin Bormann, who was Hitler's deputy on the list. 
Heinrich Müller, who was the chief of the Gestapo, Eloise Brunner, who was Adolf Eichmann's assistant, Horst Schumann, who was a doctor, a fellow doctor to Mengele, who can, did horrible medical experiments at Auschwitz, Walter Ralph, an SS engineer who developed gas vans, Klaus Barbie, who has an episode of Nazi Hunters, he was called the Butcher of Lyon. <clears throat> he actually, the Klaasfelds, the really cool French couple, were the ones to kind of track him down. Franz Murat, the Butcher of Vilnius. Ernst Lurk, uh, he was um, another high-ranking Nazi. According to the Jerusalem report, quote, the only one on this list who the Mossad came close to killing was Brunner. In May 1961, a Mossad agent found him in an apartment in Damascus where he was living under the protection of the Syrian government under the pseudonym Dr George Fisher. The agent's assignment was just to locate him, so he did not attempt to kill him. Later, the Mossad sent two letter bombs to him, one in 1961 and another in 1980. He was injured but survived. The Mossad located Mengele, who decided to abandon, but decided to abandon an attempt to snatch him and focus instead on capturing Eichmann, who was deemed a more important target. Mengele was never tried and drowned in Brazil in 1979. Ralph and Barbie were found at one point in South America, but operations to kill them were aborted. Ralph was ex arrested in Chile in 1962, but Germany's extradition request was denied. Ralph died of cancer at age 77. Barbie was extradited to Bolivia, from Bolivia to France, where he tr was tried and sentenced to life imprisonment in 1987. Ironically, he also died of cancer at the age of 77 in his fourth year in jail. So Herbert Zuckers had always been a name that was known to the Mossad, but he wasn't kind of in their top 10 list. But when they received good information that Herbert Zuckers was indeed living under his own name in Brazil, um, it was quite easy to track him down and to prove that this information that was coming back from the Jewish community living in Brazil was actually true. Now, what happened to Zuckers really is his own fault and his own problem. In fact, if he had just moved after the war to South America and kept a really low profile, likely he never would have been discovered. But Zuckers had indeed fled Latvia post-war using the Nazi rat lines and ultimately arriving initially in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, where a lot of Nazis would move, but also a lot of Germans would end up moving to and they had a huge German population. Now, he spoke German, but apparently you can hear it in his accent, which they talk about later, that he had a Lat very Latvian lilt to his German. His wife and children would soon join him and it was just like, you know, starting over after all of these things that I talked about in part one. The Times of Israel talks about how what happened next really put a target on Herbert Zucker's back. Quote, then almost immediately he began seeking out members of the country's Jewish community. Zuckers portrayed himself as both a political exile who had been targeted by the communists and a man who had rescued Jews during the Shoah. While Zuckers assiduously wooed Rio's Jews, however, his past started to catch up with him. Back in Europe, fledgling Jewish communities devoted to tracking down escaped war criminals compiled a dossier on the prominent pre-war aviator who had become a mass murderer. 
Within weeks of his arrival, reports of the first possible sightings of Zookers in Rio found their way back to London. The slow and painstaking process of confirming these reports commenced, unquote. So he really did not just lay low, but I really just see Herbert Zookers as someone who was playing both sides of the fence. I walk away thinking he doesn't, he never had a true sense of who he was because he was, I think, a sociopath who was like a chameleon. Um, And that's kind of what I've walked away thinking. But according to most sources, he's also like a raging narcissist in the strictest sense of the word because Zuckers didn't just lay low in Brazil on a national stage either. When he moved to Brazil, he gave an interview to their highest selling magazine. um, And the title of this interview was From the Baltics to Brazil. And he talked about his aviator history and what a hero he was and how he rescued Jews and all of this stuff. And in it, they refer to him as, quote, the epitome of humanity, um, which is not like uh, these members of the Masada, Simon Wiesenthal was, the Klaasfelds were. Um, this guy is not. But by 1950, the truth had started to leak out about who this guy was, um, chatter amongst the Jewish community, as I talked about. And a lot of Herbert Zucker's newfound German friends in Rio started to distance themselves from him. Now, the Jewish community was vocal about trying to get rid of Herbert Zucker's and have him extradited back to Europe to face justice. But they refer to the, quote, official indifference of the local government to do anything about it, despite the fact that they knew he was living there because so many of them were embroiled with the government. A lot of them ended up moving to South America. A lot of them moved to um, to Buenos Aires, you know, Argentina, and lived as guests of the Perones and things like that. And there's a lot of political stuff embroiled in all of this. So it doesn't surprise me that every effort to have them extradited and brought to justice in the strictest sense of the word, fault, word faltered. Um So ultimately there were protests in Brazil regarding this and this actually, Zuckers had set up his own business that was thriving initially in Rio and these protests led to his business collapsing and his family and him were forced to leave the city and they relocated to Sao Paulo, which I believe is the capital of Brazil from memory. So that brings us to a decade later, we're now into the 60s and he's now living in Sao Paulo and things were never as good as when he first arrived in Rio. Um, his life never really picked up after that initial muddying of his name, rightfully so. It seems Zuckers had learnt his lesson by this point. His life was very meagre and quiet, albeit he had multiple properties and it seemed that he used his money wisely in terms of investing in real estate, but he ran a small business that rented boats to visitors and gave you know, hydroplane taxi rides uh, because Sao Paulo's kind of on the coast. And Zuckers was now in his 60s. And if you're listening on Spotify, the episode photo is Zuckers in his 60s. And I believe, I don't have con- um, confirmation of that, but I believe that was actually taken by um, Mio during one of these because the way he describes what he's wearing and the leather jacket and that, unless he just wore one jacket all the time, it's such a great photo of him he kind of just looks like an older man, like he aged into a nice looking older man. He's got a bit of a Spencer Tracy vibe. Um, You wouldn't know by looking at it 
that he was just this horrible monster who had committed atrocities. But by now in his 60s, he'd life, his life was kind of not what he had wanted it to be um, and what it was gearing up to be when he first arrived in South America. Um, he was once an esteemed aviator, the Latvian Lindbergh, a national celebrity, and now he was kind of living in obscurity as a bit of a recluse, and the closest that he got to flying planes was air taxis or hydroplanes. And I guess he always returned to planes, I figure, because it's what he knew. And that's you always have these common threads with people, even when they're on the run, you read about fugitives and they often are found doing similar things to what they were doing initially. And it's because you gravitate to what you know. People are creatures of habit. And I guess his one true love was planes. So a team of four Mossad agents were assembled to carry out the execution of Herbert Zuckers in Uruguay. Now, Uruguay is next to Brazil, a much smaller country because Brazil is huge. We've never been to Uruguay, but I will be at some point on this podcast, hopefully this year. Uruguay. Why Uruguay when he's living in in um, Brazil? Well, Uruguay was chosen because Herbert Zuckers was living in Brazil, but Uruguay did not have the death penalty and Brazil did have the death penalty at this stage in the 1960s. And the Mossad were well aware that they could be caught killing him and they would be put on trial and there would be a lesser penalty in neighbouring Uruguay than Brazil. That's really all it comes down to. But it adds another factor, a confusing factor. Not only do you have to find this guy, befriend him, gain his trust, which was going to be incredibly hard um, because he's a very kind of sceptical older man and always had been, but you have to then lure him to another country. And how are you going to do that? Uh, they were putting all of their faith in Mio in what would be a two-part visit to South America. The first trip would be gaining his trust, building a backstory. The second trip would be his execution. Mio, whose real name, and I talked about him on part one, was Yakov Midad. He was tasked with carrying out the operation. And I talked about him on part one, how his parents were killed in concentration camps, how before the war he had been sent to Israel. He had then come back as a member of the British Army, fought the Nazis. He was German. After that, he went back to Israel and he joined the Mossad and found himself on the Nazi hunters team. And so every <clears throat> every case he took on was personal to Mio. Um, and so he had a more vested interest in seeing it through and he could put himself in the position of the victims. And Mio's amazing to me, the fact that he was able to sit down with these people and gain their trust, knowing what he knew about them and knowing what happened to his own parents, he's an incredible man. He's kind of like police who do sting operations to catch child predators, um, Mr Big Stings, and, you know, they pretend to be gang members who are recruiting these idiots. And there was a really famous case here in Australia where a police officer um, had to, for like a year, gain the trust of a child pedophile who killed a young a little boy called Daniel Moore come here um, a number of years ago and I've listened to the tapes and to think that that was a police officer with children who had to say those things to gain the trust of this sick fuck, they're, they're just amazing people <clears throat> to be able to do that. I wouldn't be able to. I'd just, I'd be like in my character and then I'd just start screaming halfway through. So 
Mio was tasked with carrying out this operation with a supporting team of four on the ground in Uruguay. But the first trip would be just Mio going to South America. And that's really dangerous. He would have no backup. He would be given a whole new identity for this new mission. This identity was called Anton Kunzel. But for this episode, I'm just going to call him Mio throughout because it might get confusing. But throughout it, Herbert Zuckers refers to him as uh, Herr Anton. Um, and the cover was going to be, he is now Anson Kudzel, a successful, um, quite kind of passive Austrian businessman who runs businesses based in the Netherlands, Holland at the time, who is in South America looking for tourism opportunities for investors that he handles back in Europe, uh, a lucrative business at the time. But I will continue to call him Mio. Mio would be carrying out the bulk of this mission alone with no backup, and this was not normal. If Zuckers, a much bigger man than Mio, found out who he was and killed him, it was over. And they likely would never be able to get Zuckers for that. And they were fully expecting, I think, Zuckers to to, to find out who he was. Um, Mio dove into the operation with the same zeal that Herbert Zuckers did when murdering his own country people. This one was personal to him and he was really looking forward to making this one-on-one, him versus Herbert Zuckers, to look him in the eye, to fucking um, gain his trust and then look him in the eye as he killed him at the end, knowing I pulled the wool over your eyes, you sicko. So it was easy to say yes when presented with the fact, you know, given a document of what Herbert Zuckers had done, all the testimonials, uh, two of which I didn't mention on part one, but um, they he basically locked a synagogue and burnt it to the ground uh, full of people. And he also shot a baby in its head in front of its mother, uh, just to remind you of what kind of person we're dealing with. But to be successful in this mission, Mio would have to do something that would turn the stomach of most Holocaust survivors. They would not be able to do it. To befriend a Nazi, a man alleged to have played a part in killing 30,000 people, a man that very much resembled the exact same men that killed Mio's parents in Theresienstadt and Auschwitz. And it wouldn't just be instant. It would take time. He would have to spend quality time with him. Stephen Tolte's book that came out a few years ago, The Good Assassin, The Mossad's Hunt for the Butcher of Latvia, Explained to the Times of Israel why Herbert Zuckers, even at 64 at this stage, was a hard target. Quote, he was a difficult target in that not only was he paranoid, but he was intelligent and he could anticipate what an Israeli agent would be doing. It was very much a psychological battle and I think Zuckers very much was almost his equal in that. Unquote. Mio was given the job in Paris on September 1st, 1964, and within 24 hours, the plans to kill Herbert Zuckers began being put into place. It's all well and good to tell someone a lie, especially in the 1960s, when it was way easier to get away with saying pretty much anything to take on a new persona, or to say you were something that you weren't when it was harder for people to check your backstory uh, and, yeah, just all round easier. But even in the 60s, this team were not dealing with an everyday Joe. Herbert Zuckers and other Nazis on the run were likely to be sceptical of this, to be wary, to be hard to get on side. 
In South America, the network of Nazis living down there and regularly holding meetups uh, across South America was called Alta uh, Camaraden. And this was, you know, a connection where you read about how they would often have catch-ups and reminisce about the old days, you know, shooting babies in the head and the like. They all had, you know, connections between each other down there and Zuckers would likely check out any backstory that Mio could come up with. So Mio had to go about checking off a very lengthy checklist to build that backstory. He was going to be a German businessman called Anton, based out of the Netherlands. He was a busy guy and that's kind of the common thread throughout this that he's constantly... (laughs) He's kind of like the George Costanza, like coming, trying to come across as busy so that the person is more sucked in. They want to be involved because this person's time is of the essence. He's got things to do. Initially, he would travel from Paris to Rotterdam just three days after being tasked with this. In Rotterdam, which is in the, the Netherlands and Holland, he opened a bank account. Uh, he got a P.O. box. He went to the Brazilian consulate and got all relevant visa documents to travel. He even went for an eye check and failed it in order to get glasses, which is something that you don't really think about. But even if he put down his glasses on the table and Herbert Zuckers picked them up and they were just clear lenses, these could be little things that would give away, just blow the whole the whole case. So he got those. He ordered new suits that were ideal for the Brazilian climate and high quality, but linen and kind of lightweight. He got new business cards created. Obviously, the Mossad gives you a new identity with a new passport. He also had a week to grow a moustache or just over a week, which is uh, if you look at pictures of Mio, which I'll put on, I have put on the episode page on unknownpassagepodcast.com, but also in the Patreon with the glasses and the moustache, that's Mio, his kind of passport photo. He purchased nice luggage and then um, for everything that he was opening and stuff, he used a home address that the Mossad had set up, which was a home address in Vienna because he's an Austrian businessman who regularly operates out of the Netherlands. He was flying to Rio from Paris in a week, so time was of the essence Mio then travelled back to Paris. He met up with the other four members of the Mossad team that had arrived by this point and started putting the plan into place. Hotels were booked for his stay in Rio and Sao Paulo. He then flew to Zurich in Switzerland. He opened a Swiss bank account. He then went back to the Netherlands. And with this backstory in place and all of his relevant documentation, he received his visa under said new name, Anton. Then he went back to Paris and the next day he flew out for the first trip of this multi-trip plan. They never intended on killing Zuckers the first time around. Trip one, which was a long way to fly back in the 60s, especially when you generally had a lot of stopovers on the way back in even planes in the 60s. It's a long way and it's a lot to put into your trip. I don't know about Mio's private life. You don't get that information about him. Uh, But spies are generally people who kind of, he probably had a family, but they generally don't have a lot of um, really kind of close, you know, friendships. It's easier to get young single people um, on board. But Mio's in his 40s at this point. And it wasn't, 
it also wasn't enough just to fly directly to Sao Paulo to target Herbert Zuckers and to begin the plan. Part of building the backstory included traveling to other cities first, which was Rio because that's where you fly first from Paris. He built a presence there by going around giving out his business card and pretending like he was inquiring about different business opportunities there for his investors, which is, you know, part of building the story. He then flew into Sao Paulo. He spent three days there kind of building a presence, going around doing much the same thing, all important. If you happen to say to Herbert Zuckers later, oh, I was inquiring about this or that, he might, you know, contact that business and ask, was this Austrian businessman ever there? And in this instance, he checked all the boxes. So the answer would always be yes. Mio then headed to the closest to his target he had come so far in his life, a restaurant on the marina where Herbert Zuckers now ran a flailing pedal boat and hydroplane business. He ordered lunch and he simply watched the marina from a distance surveying the scene, but no sign of Zuckers on this particular day. Two days later, he headed back to the marina And he went straight to the front desk and he spoke to a young blonde woman who appeared to work at the business. She spoke German and so they spoke German together. And Mio deliberately confused the woman with all kinds of questions that he knew she couldn't answer about the business and the different flights and custom packages and the like, to the point where she kind of gave up and she said, I can't help you, but that man over there can help you. And there he was, Herbert Zucker's. The Jerusalem Post, quote, close up, Herbert Zuckers looked older than in his pictures and he wore glasses now. There was almost a sheen of innocence on his face as it focused on the prospect of a new day's business. The eyes, however, had seen too much to be masked even after 20 years. Zucker's German was secondhand and it carried a heavy Baltic accent. Anton noticed that one of the frames of Zucker's eyeglasses was reinforced by tape. Like the boat, Zuckers had plainly seen better days. He responded with alacrity when Anton asked for a flight over the city. Despite his 64 years, Zuckers was still powerfully built. Sitting behind the pilot's seat as they flew over Sao Paulo, Anton sensed that he would not be an easy man to kill, unquote. So their flight, sightseeing and the like, went off without a hitch and they made chit-chat and it seemed Herbert took an instant liking to his new customer. He afterwards invited Mio aboard his boat for a post-flight drink, and during casual conversation that's almost laissez-faire on Mio's side, he was kind of like, yeah, I'm here and I'm busy and then I'm going there and I'm looking into business here for these investors and just casual chit-chat, but he couldn't just go in for the kill. He had to appear like he had things happening, that he so just happened to be on this busy trip having a drink with a fellow European. No talk of the war or or Nazism or anything like that. Over their drink, he told Herbert Zuckers that he was in Brazil scoping out tourism prospects for his European investors looking to enter the now booming market in South America. And over a drink, he realised, you know, that, Um, he realised that Herbert Zuckers actually might be thinking that Mio himself was a member of this Alta Comoradan, which is the network of Nazis in South America. 
So Mio was then asked by Herbert Zuckers, did you serve in the war? Where'd you serve? And Mio pulled down his shirt to show a scar on his chest and he told Herbert Zuckers that he worked, he had served on the Russian front. Little did Herbert Zuckers know that this scar was just from an operation that Mio had had at some point in his life that just happened to look like a bullet wound or something. And Herbert Zuckers asked his rank. He was really sussing out Mio and Mio said lieutenant, which was a deliberate downplay of, of his actual skills to kind of pit Herbert Zuckers as the superior, I suppose, and to establish this dominance hierarchy without Herbert Zuckers even realising. The Jerusalem Post. To Anton's astonishment, Zuckers began talking about the accusations against him as a war criminal. A pack of lies, said Zuckers. The Jews were out to get him, unquote. So he just starts talking openly about it and all of the things that they said he did. Now, this is what you come across. I talked about this on part one with the deniers. They say, that you know, I went through all their arguments kind of on part one. And a lot of them say, or Zuckers, one of his things was, you know, uh, the 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 Russians want me and, you know, those hunting Nazis want me as well. They kind of just put me in, in the spot. That they just want me kind of thing. Um, it's, it's really complex, but it also ties into when I talked about how he got to Rio and he tried to establish himself in different communities. I think he's just a chameleon, you know, where he muddies the waters and confuses the situation by deliberately seeking out friendships with people to say, no, but... You know, it's like the equivalent, but I have a I have a black friend or, you know, I have a Jewish friend. When Mio made it clear, look, I must head off, I am a busy businessman, it seemed that he had snared Zucker's interest because Zucker's was down on his luck and uh, he thought this would kind of earn him some money, whatever Mio was doing down in South America. And he asked Mio to come to his home to discuss business further. Mio said, no, no, I have to leave for business meetings. Um, and he said, I'll be back in Sao Paulo in a week and I'll make contact with you then. And so he left swapping details. And all the while, every night he would return and he would transcribe what had happened that day to the team in Paris every step he took. A week later, Mio was indeed back in Sao Paulo. I doubt he went very far in that time. And he went to Zucker's home and it was surrounded by barbed wire fences, fencing and guard dogs, much like a lot of them were living, including Joseph Mengler. He ate dinner with Herbert Zucker's family, something he would have to do twice in the time that he was friendly with him. And after dinner, Herbert Zucker showed him all the medals he'd received as a Latvian airman and as an SS officer. And he also kind of surveilled his surroundings as a spy. You have to be kind of aware of what's going on around you. And he saw that there was a pretty pretty big arms chest with pistols in it. So Herbert Zuckers was always armed, he found out quite quickly. By this stage, Herbert Zuckers' mind was brimming with ideas to make his stake in Mio's quote-unquote business. He told Mio how he owned two ranches just outside of Sao Paulo that could be used for this tourism venture. And the following day, Herbert Zuckers and Mio headed out to one in the jungle on the outskirts of Sao Paulo where there were snakes slithering through the long grass and Herbert Zuckers had told Mio wear boots to avoid snake bites and carry a knife as well. Um, because of snakes and the like. Zuckers was armed with his pistol 
Um, and Mio had his boots on and he had a knife. And it occurred to Mio that this was the ideal place for Zuckers to lead him to if he suspected him of being a spy. And if he killed Mio, no one would ever really know what happened to him, except maybe the Mossad who knew where he was, but they couldn't really openly come out and explain, could they? They're in a bit of a sticky spot. But instead, it seemed that Zuckers was sizing up Mio and he stopped on the trail and he suggested the two do some target practice. The Jerusalem Post, quote, he handed his rifle to Anton, who put all of the bullets into a tree trunk within a one inch radius. Zucker's spread was three inches and he graciously conceded that this guest was the better marksman, unquote. It's a fine line Mio has to walk. Like you don't want to appear like you're better than him, but you can't really not be good at it either because he's so highly trained. If he's not good at it at all and just misses the tree trunk completely, it th- it throws apart his whole story. So he's walking a very fine line. Equally, though, as much as Zuckers could dispose of Mio here with no one knowing, this could have been the ideal place to dispose of Herbert Zuckers, but that was not the plan. And they were going by the plan that they had to ultimately get him to nearby Uruguay. Not only could they not do it here, it wouldn't get the world's attention. Likely they wouldn't find him for a while and by that point Mio would be out of the country but it just wouldn't send the message about Zuckers that they were trying to send to the rest of the world. But the jungle trip went off without a hitch. And during this time, Herbert Zuckers, as the Jerusalem Post talks about, he started calling Mio, whose name was Anton um, in his new identity, Herr Anton, which is kind of informal and friendly, but deferential, as they put it. Um, And Anton... (laughs) Trying to almost be patronising but appear like he was friendly, he did not call him Herr Zuckers, he called him Herbert, uh, which probably would have been a gripe, but Zuckers didn't mention it, but I'm sure it probably pissed him off. Um, so ultimately they walked away from it, kind of reaching a new level in their friendship. Zuckers then suggested that before Anton go home, they visit a beachside area that was quite ripe for tourism at the time called Porto Alegre. This is a seaside city in the south of Brazil. Today it's about a two-hour flight from Sao Paulo. Mio said sure. He had a couple of days left to spare and he was really interested in reporting back to his investors in Europe. So he booked the flights and the hotel for them and they actually headed down separately The Jerusalem Post talks about how he made sure that Zuckers arrived first so that Zuckers didn't feel like he was walking into a trap. At the hotel, quote, When Anton knocked on Zuckers' door, the Latvian opened it with a pistol in one hand. If you had a long nose, said Zuckers with a smile, you might have been in danger, unquote. Now, as much as this is a reference to Jews, obviously, I think he's messing with him at this point. He's trying to test to see if he gets a reaction out of him. And they regularly talk about how Zuckers would do these sudden strange things where Mio, I think, would walk away at the end of that day thinking we're back to square one, this guy's on to me. He, it's a cat and mouse game. But this is all Brazil, and Brazil wasn't the place planned to end Zuckers. Uruguay was. It was a matter of building trust to get him across that border because of the death penalty in Brazil, but also because the plan was set up for the team to carry it out in Montevideo, the capital of Uruguay. 
Mio had built so much rapport that when he said he was now heading across to Uruguay for business and I must go, uh, and he said, then I have to fly back to Europe and I'm a busy man, he casually said to Zuckers, do you want to come along um, to check out these business interests with me? We're, we're mates, right? And he was shocked. Zuckers readily agreed. He was getting him to Uruguay. Mio flew ahead to Montevideo, the capital of Uruguay, and the trap was set with Zuckers arriving the following day. The Jerusalem Post, quote, At dinner that evening in a charming Montevideo restaurant, Zuckers suddenly addressed the waiter in Yiddish. Redst a bissel Yiddish? Do you speak a bit of Yiddish? Zuckers had picked up Yiddish from the Jews of his Latvian hometown, Labau. The, the waiter did not look at all Jewish, and Anton, who remained deadpan, assumed that Zuckers was watching his reaction. But Zuckers' question may have reflected a broader paranoia, unquote. I think my personal opinion is that Zuckers is testing the waters every step of the way, which he kind of ups the ante shortly. But what I've, like, noticed about him, which I believe he spoke um, kind of a bit of Yiddish, um, even though he's speaking, I believe, German there, um, because he, in his backstory we talked about on part one, he had Jewish friends, he travelled to Israel, he, you know, regularly associated with the Jewish community in Latvia. Um, but I think he was actually not testing the waiter, he was testing Mio in that moment. That maybe he thought that Mio would suddenly, like some sort of weird muscle memory, just start speaking Yiddish. I'm not entirely sure. But this is all part of the psychology of someone who served in the forces and was such a crazy psycho. But you'll be upset to know that this trip was not the trip to Uruguay to kill Anton Zuckers. This trip had to be wrapped up. But the groundwork was laid. They had made it to Uruguay and now he had you know, Herbert Zucker's interested in Uruguay, so it would be easier to get him there the next time around. They swapped details. Anton Mio uh, gave Herbert Zucker's his details in the Netherlands, including his post office box, remember? He'd set all this up before he left. Um, and his, you know, business card, his business address, his home address in Vienna, this was all set up. If Herbert Zucker's went home and checked all of this, it would all check out. And just to kind of firm up the sense that this was a legitimate business transaction, before he left, he said to Herbert Zuckers, mail me the airline tickets, you know, um, for this trip to Uruguay so that I can reimburse you with my bookkeepers back in Europe. And it was kind of a, as the Jerusalem Post talks about, a nice touch uh, that added to the sense that they were, they're a team now. So Mio flies back to Paris, he meets up with his team, they go through everything that happened, he knows what kind of guy he's dealing with now, and they devise the final instalment of Herbert Zucker's sad life. Four Mossad agents would be on the next trip to Montevideo, Uruguay. They would be on the ground and there would be a couple more in other parts, including Brazil, kind of as ground support. This was the plan, but you know what they say about best laid plans, but I'm going to read you what the plan was. Quote, Zuckers would be lured to Montevideo and taken by Anton to an isolated building. Then he would be subdued. The charges against him would be read to him as well as the verdict handed down by those who will never forget. Only then would he be killed. A note containing the verdict would be left on the body, unquote. 
So they were going to read the charges much like you do with like a kangaroo court. What happened at the end of the Russian Revolution with the Romanovs when they took them into a room and read the charges against them? What happened with Nikolai Ceausescu in Romania? They were then going to not sign it off the Israeli Mossad. They were going to sign it off those who will never forget, which is the common tagline that you see again and again related to the Holocaust. And when you visit Auschwitz, um, it essentially says that on a lot of the plaques that are throughout throughout Birkenau, never forget. So that was the plan. But as we all know, best laid plans and all that. When I was recording this um, just now, actually, this is flashing to real time, I um, a message popped up that I just randomly saw from one of my patrons um, in Patreon, uh, Melissa, who just, she just wrote regarding the first episode um, and talking about how disabled people were killed. She said, um, I run and own a house that takes care of adult men with intellectual disabilities the thought of them getting shot because they're disabled enrages me. And, yeah, I just had to, like, I had to sit in that moment for a minute. It, like, made me really emotional. Um, there's a scene in Schindler's List that where the the nurses in a hospital and the doctors are giving all the patients and disabled people um, I essentially, like, cyanide to kill them before the Nazis come in and then they they open fire on just all, all you know, all the beds and because it's black and white you just see the blood kind of appearing on all the sheets but they've already killed them and these people were angels um to put them oh man I'm getting like emotional <laughs> I just wanted to bring back what these people did and why someone like Mio even if you think that what they're doing is not um it's extrajudicial and you believe in always following the status quo and always following the the path, you know, of least resistance. Sometimes when the powers that be are against you, you know, these people pop up that are kind of angels and and so, yeah, I'm sorry about that. I just saw it and I, I really felt compelled to say it um, because I just wanted to bring back again and again why... This is not just some old man living his life um, in South America. Um, These are people who actually did horrible things and you think of it as an abstract thing, but when you think of Mengele meeting his end in Brazil while swimming and he had a massive stroke while he was at the beach, which is awesome, but it wasn't, it's not enough of an end for him um, because he would literally sew people together and do horrific things to little children who were crying for their parents. So I just wanted to, you know, bring that back again and again before we get into what will hopefully give you um, some level of contentment. So on New Year's 1964, uh, Mio sent a Happy New Year telegram to Herbert Zuckers. He's still maintaining the friendship. And he asked him in this Happy New Year the last one you'll ever see. He asked him to obtain visas for him and his clients who were coming again to South America. Um, and these visas, because things were different than you couldn't get them like on arrival at an airport. These were for Uruguay and Chile. Now, this was going to be like, we're also going to go and check out <laughs> other kind of whether you come or not, we're going on to Chile as well after Montevideo to check out some real estate and stuff like that. Um, this was crucial, this part. It relied, finally, it all fell into Herbert Zucker's court. 
he had to get the visas because you had to get them on the ground in the country, you know, if you're choosing, which is really interesting back in the 60s, you could just apply for visas for other people. Um, try doing that now. And pulling off this plan meant Cook, Zuckers had to get these visas. Could they trust him to do that? Every day, one of the team members had to get the train from Paris to Rotterdam, which I've done, and uh, check the PO box that was set up there, you know, in Anton's name. And every day there was no visas and no word from Herbert Zuckers. And then it was January and it was getting late into January. And finally, on January 20th, 1965, a letter from Sao Paulo arrived. In it, essentially... um, Herbert Zuckers said, you know, all good to go. And so Mio bought a ticket to Buenos Aires, Argentina, um, via Brazil, because he's he's kind of you have to understand, he's he's making out like you're just a side visit, you know, Herbert on my way to other business. So Anton um Mio bought this ticket to Buenos Aires via Rio and Sao Paulo, you had to go via a bunch of different places for a January 28th flight. And there was going to be a brief stopover in Sao Paulo, which is where Herbert Zuckers lived. And he asked him to meet him in the transit lounge, which is another 1960s thing that you just couldn't do today while he was transiting. Um, Now, he he said, yep, all right. And he sent a telegram to him. And that was the end of that. And so as he disembarked into this transit lounge, there was Herbert Zuckers. And if you've seen the episode of Nazi Hunters, you'll remember this part because it always stuck in my mind. Um, There is Herbert Zuckers standing on the tarmac, pointed directly at the plane as Mio gets off it. And he's holding a 1960s, you know, camcorder, video camera, and he's filming him. It's one of those kind of ones that look almost like the one that Zabruda filmed the assassination of JFK on, one of those very 60s kind of square ones, and he's filming him and waving. And Mio immediately knew what he was doing. He was getting him on film in case something happened to him, um, and he knew that this was like a setup. Anton Zuckers was not just greeting him and documenting this on film because it was such a joyous experience. So and like Mio tries to kind of wave, but he also tries to cover his face as well and he was balding at that time, so he's trying to cover up, like, where it shows that he's really bald kind of at the front. According to the Jerusalem Post, quote, in the three months since they had last seen each other, Zucker's survival instincts had recovered. Anton understood that the filming was no friendly gesture but a warning. And then as they sat in the transit lounge, Herbert Zucker said something that pissed off Mio so much that he actually, like, lashed out and really berated him. Herbert Zuckers had never got the visas and in, he just said, no, I haven't done it yet. I'll get around to it. He was testing Mio and Mio was pissed and he made it really clear. He essentially berated Zuckers to the point where Zuckers actually ended up apologising, which is awesome. He said, if you can't come through with something basic for these really rich clients of mine who are asking you for something really basic for you to do, I do not want you on board in my business venture. And this was enough to kind of have Herbert Zucker's with his tail between his legs actually go, oh, I'm really sorry, I'll get onto it immediately. During this stopover, he also asked, you know, after they visited Montevideo where they would be staying in Santiago in Chile, 
not knowing that he would never make it there. And Mio really saw this as he's, he's, he's taking down all this information and with the tape and all that, he's going to be passing it off to maybe his wife and saying, this is where if something happens to me, this is everything that led up to it. So Herbert Zook has ultimately got the visas. You could pretty much get them like on the day at the time. But he was armed and suspicious, and we know this because before leaving his home to fly to Montevideo, Uruguay, he handed the film that he had filmed of Mio coming off the plane to his wife, and he said, quote, if anything happens to me, he's the one who did it, unquote. So we know that that's what he was doing. So this is when, when they finally have their visas, the clients of Mio arrive into South America with their new visas that Anton Zuckers has got for them. He's actually just got visas for a bunch of different Mossad agents without realising it. It must have pissed him off because they're all Jewish. Like, imagine, like, in his last moments, I love the fact that he knew, you know, what was happening. It all came to fruition in his mind, all flashed before his eyes. I actually orchestrated this. So... A bunch of them flew to Buenos Aires, Argentina. This was where they were going to go after Uruguay, Mio, and the ones who acted out the execution of Herbert Zuckers. They were never going to go back to Brazil because they could, ex- you know, there's a death penalty there. They were going to go from Uruguay to um, Buenos Aires and then fly back to Europe. So they were looking for a safe house there. Meanwhile, one team member flew to Montevideo, met up with Mio. And the final plans were being put into place. They were looking for a house in Montevideo that could pass off as some sort of office building um, or investment property where they could lure Herbert Zuckers to and murder him there. Now, they did ultimately find one. It's kind of like in a really trendy part of town in Montevideo, on the seafront, they refer to it as a villa. Um, it wasn't exactly what they were looking for because there was a construction crew 30 metres away working throughout the day and they were going to kill a man and potentially, you know, shots would be fired. So they were worried about that, but it's all they could come up with. I actually found a CIA declassified document during researching this that talks about Herbert Zuckers and the people who took responsibility for his death. And they actually talk about how the villa had been rented by a bunch of Austrians before this happened. I'm going to read this to you. This was from um, a release from the CIA in 1965. And I'm flashing forward a bit in time, but I have to just to explain that this is never mentioned anywhere else and I find it quite interesting. Warrants were issued for the arrest of the diplomat, Mio, whose name was not disclosed, two Austrians known to have been living in the beach house prior to Zucker's murder, and two Frenchmen. All five suspects have since left Montevideo, unquote. Now, that's never mentioned anywhere else. I believe this was a connection that they had, and I believe that whoever that Austrian businessman was and they never figured it out, this was all kind of a massage kind of front, um, and they just didn't know it at the time. So they had to work around the construction crew and the location where it was in this kind of trendy beachside community. They somehow had to get him there. But actually, I think it worked to their favour because it established that this was an established trendy area uh, where he could have kind of like a stake in the game. And then the day in question came, February 23rd, 19... 
1965. 9.30 in the morning, Anton is already in Uruguay, Mio. He's at the Montevideo airport and the plane lands, the last plane that Herbert Zuckers will ever set foot on and he loved flying so much. This was an Air France flight from Sao Paulo to Montevideo. Zuckers gets off the plane, he looks around, he sees Mio, they wave, they have a warm, you know, hello, how you going? You ready to go into business together? They go into town and Mio checks Herbert Zuckers into his hotel in Montevideo. They, to firm up the fact that they were heading on to Chile for further business opportunities after a couple of days in Montevideo, they went to a Lufthansa office, Lufthansa being the airline, um, and they confirmed reservations for flights to Chile that would obviously never be taken. And then they drive to a real estate agent's office where they ask this real estate agent to drive them around looking for properties for these investors. Um, and he specifically looked at overpriced properties to build up the fact that he had investors with money. Um, so they looked around and he was like, okay, they look around with the real estate agent and yep, um, we'll, we'll contact you if we're interested. They get back into, I believe he was driving a Beetle Mio, it was a rental car. And Mio says to Herbert Zucker's all right, just before we wrap up today, I just need to go to a property that I've rented as an office um, that I'm kind of operating out of. I need to check a couple of things regarding paperwork and I'll be real quick. So it's all set up and this is the moment. Thankfully, the street was quiet. Um, the construction workers had seemingly knocked off for a break, but at some point they would actually like come back, but they were further enough away that they wouldn't hear what went down. But this was not a property to check out. It was the last place that Herbert Zuckers would ever set foot in as a living and breathing human, where he would look in the eyes of people who had lost their entire families because of people like him. Mayo parks outside the entrance and he walks directly to the door. He goes first. He doesn't even look back for Herbert Zuckers. He's just leading the way like he's on a mission. Just got to go check my paperwork. He opens up the villa with a key. He goes straight inside. He leaves the door wide open and he's thinking, will he follow me or will he stay at the car? But Herbert Zuckers made the mistake of following. And as he entered the door and stepped foot into the main front room, the door of the villa slammed shut and three men hidden behind the door leapt onto Herbert Zuckers. What followed next is depicted beautifully by the Jerusalem Post, so I'm going to read that for you. Quote, It was a moment Zuckers had been anticipating for 20 years. Roaring, he shook free. The three Israelis had stripped to their underwear so that the clothes they wore in the getaway would remain untorn and unbloodied. Fighting desperately and with astonishing strength, Zuckers ripped the door handle off. Anton now joined in an attempt to subdue him. Last mich sprechen, Zucker shouted. Let me speak. He tried desperately to get to the pistol in his pocket. Concerned that his shouting would reach the nearby construction workers, Joseph, which is one of the other guys, shoved his fingers into Zucker's mouth. Zucker's clamped down hard and almost bit one off. Joseph picked up a hammer and struck him, but Zucker's kept struggling. Giving up the efforts to subdue him, 
Joseph pulled his pistol and fired two rounds into Zucker's head. His heavy body was lifted into a trunk and the death sentence, written in English, pinned to his shirt. Glancing down the street, Anton could see no indication that the construction workers had paid attention to the shots, unquote. Now, there's a bit of confusion, especially in the early CIA um, declassified reports where they say he was beaten to death and early reports say he was shot. But because they come at the exact... They come within weeks of this happening and because it was the 60s, there was a bit of confusion. But essentially that's the reality of what happened. Um, he, what I just said, they tried to subdue him with the hammer and he just kept going. So they fired two rounds into his head. Best laid plans, they never got to read his sentence to him because he struggled so much. You know, they thought that they'd just overpower him and he'd sit there like on his knees and because there were so many of them. Um, but he, he gave up a fight. Um, and just the irony of the let me speak should not be lost on you, which I noticed it wasn't lost on a lot of people commenting on the video for the Nazi Honeys episode on YouTube. You know, that's what stood out to people. Interesting, considering if someone had said that to him, he would have immediately shot them in the head back in Latvia um, when he was on his little power trip. So anyway, it must have been weird being attacked by these like four Israeli dudes in their underwear, which is kind of comedic when you think about it, but then the gravity of what they're actually doing kind of hits you. Anyway, he's put in this massive kind of wooden trunk. Uh, It's very an old school, but it's big enough to like fit, you know, a human and they'd already figured that out. Um, And they they pinned the death sentence um, from those who will not forget to his shirt. And then the men showered in the villa. They dressed in their clothes that they'd taken off before this happened. They wiped down all the surfaces. One of their fingers was Joseph's fingers was hanging on by a thread. They got into two cars and they headed off. They were driving super carefully so as not to get pulled over for any traffic infractions along the way. And along the way, the men casually split up across the city of Montevideo. Mia was checked into a hotel um, at the time, you know, obviously before this all happened with luggage because it would be it would gain the attention of people if he didn't have any luggage. But he was never intending on returning to that hotel to check out. They were going to go straight to the airport. So in order to check into a new flight, it would look weird if he was checking into a flight with no luggage. But don't worry, Mio had this covered. He already had like two suitcases. One had been in the boot of his car the whole time with new clothes and everything. So he just headed straight to the airport with this fresh suitcase. When he was at the airport, he called the hotel. He said, I won't be back. Um, just get rid of my luggage. <laughs> Something's come up. He'd already paid up front for both him and Zuckers, so it was no issue to the hotel because they were making money for, you know, a room that was now essentially free. He also cancelled the air tickets that him and Zucker, that he had booked for himself and Zuckers to Santiago, Chile, a flight that was never going to happen anyway, and the subsequent hotel reservations in Chile as well. Mio, along with the others, but all separately in separate seats as if they didn't know each other. The recreations on Nazi Hunters are really memorable. Like it's these Israeli, like these slim tan Israeli dudes in 60s clothing striding around kind of B-roll footage, um, striding around Montevideo um, in their big kind of 60s Jeffrey Dahmer glasses and that. Um, And they all flew to Buenos Aires, Argentina. Here... Mio handed out all their new passports and identities, which had already been organised with the Mossad, and they boarded flights, you know, the following day back to Europe. 
um, with these new passports and identities. But before they left, they had a meal that night where they shared a bottle of champagne, but the Jerusalem Post talks about how they never talked about what had happened that day. The only one missing from the dinner was the guy who almost had his finger bitten off by Herbert Zucker's and he'd gone to a doctor to have it stitched back on. They didn't talk about it. As the Jerusalem Posts put it, they were not killers, any of them, but none had any compunction about the vengeance they had taken, unquote. And then the following day, they flew back to Europe and it was almost done, almost. Herbert Zucker's, though, was lying in a trunk in an empty villa in on the other side of the world and no one was going to find him unless there was a tip-off and that fell on the Mossad team to do. So essentially, they needed to contact the world news. So they called the two agencies that kind of had stringers in different countries, but they called the Associated Press and Reuters their German officers. And they said what had happened anonymously. They told them where Herbert Zucker's body could be found. And when they called them, they read out the verdict and why they had done it. And they signed it off with those who will never forget. Now, these news agencies did inform the police in Montevideo in Uruguay and then the group waited and there was no press at all about this and so they called the AP and Reuters again a few days later and repeated what they'd said the first time and the AP and Reuters both said that the police in Montevideo couldn't find the villa they couldn't find the address that had been provided it's kind of comical because it's kind of like when you know I think it was the Beltway sniper like one of them calls in I can't really remember he called in a tip and the woman doesn't take it seriously. It's kind of like the Paul Pelosi thing recently, like the only time you'll feel sorry for him when you hear that 911 call and they're just not listening or there's some sort of like fuck up, you know, when you're trying to convey this stuff, you're trying to, in this instance, they're trying, it should be a really serious thing that's taken seriously, but it's just this comedy of errors afterwards. So anyway, they repeated the location they said, this is not a hoax. He has been murdered and this is where you'll find him. And the following day, March 7th, 1965, finally the Montevideo police found the villa and found the decomposing body of Herbert Zuckers, the hangman of Riga, who had been dead for a couple of weeks by this point. And this is when it hit the world headlines and you can read all the headlines from the time of him being found, but they had all the journals and news articles are at the time, uh, they don't mention them aside because they weren't sure who did it. Now, one of the interesting things about this that you don't get with a lot of cases is you can watch them discover the body because it's on YouTube and the Associated Press back in the day filmed everything. There was no sanitization of death as much as there is today kind of on news and things like that. There's black and white footage that you can watch on on the AP archives on YouTube and essentially all of the media are in the room that it happened in and the big trunk is there and they open it up and it looks like he's covered by like a blanket or something and it's black and white so I can't really tell I think it's like cockroaches or maggots or something and they peel back this blanket or whatever that's over him and there is the really decomposing body of Herbert Zucker's if you want to go watch it and all of the journalists in the room you can see them step back a bit and a lot of them like put pieces of paper over their faces because the smell must have been horrific uh it's 
it's warm there and he's been decomposing in a trunk that's closed up for that amount of time. Um, but it's just a really interesting thing, like piece of history that they actually filmed and broadcast to the world back in the day. And essentially the world the world's reaction was what you'd expect. Um, people who had protested against closing down trials for these people, the world was against these people wanting to have a Nazi hunter amnesty. Most people were sympathetic to the killers and the victims of those, and they presumed from the beginning that the killers were Jewish. Um, they didn't know if it was Mossad, but they figured it might be local, uh, local Jewish community because he'd been pointed the finger at before and nothing had been done. And because it hit the world headlines, people who had been scared because they knew he was out there, who had lived in Riga but never come forward with their stories because they just never knew what would could come from that with him still being out there and had never testified before, they came forward detailing all of the horrific stuff that had happened to them, even more stories, under Herbert Zucker's. And this really firmed up for Mio in particular kind of the Jerusalem Post talks about how it gave him a chill, Mio, because he had befriended this man and he you kind of put aside everything he's done to get this job done and then to see it all out there, everything he had done, he couldn't believe this man, he called him Herbert at one point, granted it was tongue-in-cheek and kind of riling him up a bit, but it had just spent all this time with this man who was essentially a monster I don't think it's a coincidence that a month after this hit the world headlines, the amnesty proposal that I talked about at the beginning of this episode was rejected. And that gave way to the fact that people could continue in a judicial sense uh, to hunt Nazi war criminals and bring them to justice and have them extradited and to f- to face trial for what they did. Stefan Tolte, who wrote a recent book, and I've talked about him um extensively throughout these two parts, he believes that it helped kind of reject this amnesty because of how close it was to when it happened. He said, quote, this was to the Times of Israel, I want to believe it's played a psychological part in giving the Holocaust a face, but really I can't substantiate this with sources, but certainly played a part of a movement re-evaluating what happened during the Shoah in Germany, and I think it was important for that reason, unquote. Um, unfortunately, the only real fallout, as Stefan Tolte discusses as well, is that the killing of Herbert Zucker's, the only real bad thing about it, was that even 40 years after, just not that even long ago, um, really, just 10, 15 years ago, the Latvian government tried to kind of open an investigation into whether he had ever committed the crimes that he was accused of because he'd never been convicted of them. Um, And according to Stefan Tolte, this is kind of they were trying to rehabilitate the former national hero's image, which you can kind of understand, I suppose, from their perspective. There was no real ending to that. Um, There was no real wrap-up, whether he was or he wasn't. Um, But I'm going to go with the fact that he was. Um, Just because he had befriended Jews in the past and gone to gone to Israel and done all these things just because he was a celebrity it it doesn't mean anything when push comes to shove and his country was at war it brought out the worst in Herbert Zucker's and I believe he met the end 
unlike, you know, a lot of them where it doesn't feel like they fully were able to comprehend the gravity of what they did because it all went through the judicial process. And I believe in law and order. I believe in, you know, the court system. We need that. But in this instance, when no one was doing anything and talk was of stopping looking for these people, um, I believe in this instance it was it was the right thing to do. None of these Mossad agents ever got any fanfare. It was only later on when he was an older man that Mio was able to come out and talk about it. They immediately after they returned to Europe were assigned to new Mossad intelligence, you know, uh, expeditions and they had other Nazis up until now most of them on Simon Wiesenthal's list are gone. When Simon Wiesenthal died a number of years ago, I believe he only had one left on his list and if that person was alive today, they'd be like 105. So when you look up, even Wikipedia just has a list of Nazi war criminals, you know, current present day ones. But when it says age suspected, it's like 100, 110, most of them. So it's unlikely that they're still, you know, alive a lot of, but it is listed there, the ones that were on the list to find and, and seemingly went missing. Um, but I, I, th- I believe that this story gave a lot of people hope who had lost hope, who were victims um, of, you know, these these people, particularly uh, the Irish commando in Latvia. They didn't have a voice, you know. Victor Arish went on trial and um, a bunch of them were, like, let off from the Irish commando and then you get one of these higher-ups living and running a business down in South America and it's common knowledge and he's on TV talking himself up down there when he first gets down there and you'd feel like you were being victimised all over again. Um, imagine someone was raped, you know, and that person was just on TV being, you know, idolised initially when he first got down to South America and you'd feel like you were experiencing that that trauma all over again. So ultimately after that there was there's a bunch of articles about how his family tried to have him moved to a new cemetery I believe he was returned to Latvia but they wanted to have him buried in some sort of like memorial cemetery because of his high ranking and there was some sort of argument with that with his family I don't know what happened to his wife and kids um you know I mean I don't really have anything to say about it I presume that they moved back to Europe um I don't think it came as a shock to them. Like, I I think I'm, I'm not going to pretend these people are like dummies and kind of go, oh, they were innocent victims in it. When the war ends and he suddenly goes, we're all moving down to uh, Brazil. And then when you get to Rio, people start kind of talking about your husband or your, your dad um, who was absent and drunk and seemed violent a lot of the time during the war. And he just up and says, all right, we're moving to Sao Paulo one day out of the blue. You've got to start putting the putting the pieces together like uh, I think we're on the run from something um Joseph Mengele's wife regularly like sent him money they stayed married for ages afterwards he regularly returned uh to Germany for holidays um even though he was living kind of in different parts of South America um his family continues to run a business today it's called like Mengele Brothers it run has like farm machine equipment you can go on their website um they kept their names they were super proud of it um so I don't really know what happened you know with the uh, the Zuckers family and um, I don't really care. So that is the end of this story. Um, Mio died in 2012. The other guys didn't kind of get the fanfare that he got because they were only in it 
the final part, but I think they're central to it as well. But Mio, you know, I think it's only since he died that he's really been, he's got the the kind of applause that he deserves, I suppose. Um, and he looked like a nice old man as well when he died. And he lived till he was about 90. He lived a long life. So, um, and you can read kind of obituaries and things to him online. Um, I hope that you've enjoyed this two-parter on the hunt for Herbert Zuckers. Uh, no matter what you think about it, you can take something away from it. Um, I've put up his episode page, but you can watch a lot of stuff on YouTube, as I said, from the AP at the time. The AP is great, even though there's no, the AP archives, even though there's no audio on a lot of them, you can watch these things that they just wouldn't show the world press today, like them finding Herbert Zucker's body. It is in black and white and so it's not totally gory. I mean, it's clearly like a dead body. Um, so, yeah, um, visit the website at unknownpassagepodcast.com. Um, become a patron. It links off the website, but it, you can just download the Patreon app. Love our little community there. If you'd like to give to the PayPal, it's unknownpassagepodcast at gmail.com. Um no world headlines this week because I've been so wrapped up with this. Oh, I've got a couple, but I might save them till next time because I don't have enough. It was just mainly Aussies behaving badly in Bali to the point where Bali's got new laws in place just for Australians, uh, which is awesome and long needed. Um, and some guys fight with Emirates that I'll tell you about next time. I haven't had a chance really to look at the news because I've been so wrapped up in this and other stuff. I may be taking next week off. Um, I kind of need a break mentally and to put my energies into um, some other stuff work-related in my life. Um, and I've released quite a lot of really long episodes recently, as much as I love doing them. I've kind of got a second wind with telling stories on this podcast. I, I think taking a month off like over our summer, like early summer, kind of revitalised me a fair bit. And I get really excited when... I finish up an episode and then I'm I'm so anal, so I've got I use Trello to organise all my episodes and I also use it for business. It's an amazing app. It's all different boards and I have all the episodes planned in a in a row and each person, Patreon who requested it, where they're from, and then I've got a picture of who I've chosen for that particular episode. So I can like go through and look at the faces of these people and and so I'm generally working chronologically um, according to when they've been requested and people have joined Patreon. So this was Michelle's. Thank you so much for requesting one of the Baltic countries as much as it took us to South America as much as the Baltic countries. It, you know, the crux of it was Latvia. Um, I will be back. If I'm not back next week, I'll be back the following week. It just depends how I'm tracking for time. Um, and it will be an my new sign off, all new case, all new place. I'll see you then. Bye.